one chapter three of lisbeth a tale of the dutch this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by abigail rasmussen chapter three montalvo wins a trick turning up the bree strat then as now perhaps the finest in the town of leyden montalvo halted his horse before a substantial house fronted with three rounded gables of which the largest that over the entrance in the middle was shaped into two windows with balconies this was lisbeth's house which had been left to her by her father where until such time as she should please to marry she dwelt with her aunt clara van ziel the soldier whom he had summoned having run to the horse's head montalvo leapt from his driver's seat to assist the lady to alight at the moment lisbeth was occupied with wild ideas of swift escape but even if she could make up her mind to try it, there was an obstacle which her thoughtful cavalier had foreseen. Geoffrey von Hout, he said, as he pulled up, do you remember that you are still wearing skates? It was true, though in her agitation she had forgotten all about them, and the fact put sudden flight out of the question. She could not struggle into her own house, walking on the sides of her feet, like the tame seal which old fisherman Hans had brought from northern seas. It would be too ridiculous, and the servants would certainly tell the story all about the town. Better for a while longer to put up with the company of the odious Spaniard than to become a laughing-stock in an attempt to fly. Besides, even if she found herself on the other side of it, could she shut the door in his face? Would her promise let her, and would he consent? Yes, she said briefly, I will call my servant. Then, for the first time, the Count became complimentary in a dignified Spanish manner. Let no base-born menial hold the foot which it is in honor for an hidalgo of Spain to touch. I am your servant, he said, and resting one knee on the snow-covered step, he waited. Again there was nothing to be done, so Lisbeth must needs thrust out her foot, from which, very delicately and carefully, he unstrapped the skate. "'What Jack can bear, Jill must put up with,' muttered Lisbeth to herself, as she advanced the other foot. Just at that moment, however, the door behind them began to open. "'She who buys,' murmured Motalvo, as he commenced on the second set of straps." Then the door swung wide, and the voice of Dirk von Gorl was heard, saying in a tone of relief, "'Yes, sure enough, it is she, Tante Clara, and someone is taking off her boots.' "'Skates, Signor, skates,' interrupted Montalvo, glancing backward over his shoulder, then added in a whisper as he bent once more to his task, <clears throat> "'Pays. You will introduce me, is it not so? I think it will be less awkward for you.' So, as flight was impossible, for he held her by the foot, and an instinct told her that, especially to the man she loved, the only thing to do was to make light of the affair, Lisbeth said, "'Dirk, Cousin Dirk, I think you know this is the Honorable Captain, the Count Juan de Montalvo.' "'Ah, it is the Signor Van Gurs, said Montalvo, pulling off the skate and rising from his knee, which, from his excess of courtesy, was now wet through. Signor, allow me to return to you, safe and sound, the fair lady of whom I have robbed you for a while. For a while, Captain, blurted Dirk. 
Why, from the first to the last, she has been gone nearly four hours, and a fine state we have been in about her. That will all be explained presently, Signor, at supper to which the Jeffrau has been so courteous as to ask me. Then, aside and below his breath, again the ominous word of reminder, pays. Most happily your cousin's presence was the means of saving a fellow creature's life. But, as I have said, the tale is long. Signor, permit. And in another second, Lisbeth found herself walking down her own hall upon the arm of the Spaniard, while Dirk, her aunt, and some guests followed obediently behind. Now Montalva knew that his difficulties were over for that evening, at any rate, since he had crossed the threshold and was a guest. Half unconsciously, Lisbeth guided him to the balconied Sikkamar on the first floor, which, in our day, would answer to the drawing-room. Here several other of her friends were gathered, for it had been arranged that the ice-festival should end with a supper as rich as the house could give. To these, too, she must introduce her cavalier, who bowed courteously to each in turn. Then she escaped, but as she passed him, distinctly she could swear did she see his lips shape themselves to the hateful word, pays. When she reached her chamber, so great was Lisbeth's wrath and indignation that almost she choked with it, till again reason came to her aid, and with reason a desire to carry the thing off as well as might be. So she told her maid Greta to robe her in her best garment and to hang about her neck the famous collar of pearls which her father had bought from the east that was the talk and envy of half the women in Leiden. On her head, too, she placed the cap of lovely lace, which had been a wedding gift to her mother by her grandmother, the old dame who wove it. Then she added such golden ornaments as it was customary for women of her class of wear, and descended to the gathering-room. Meanwhile, Montalvo had not been idle. Taking Dirk aside and pleading his travel-worn condition, he had prayed him to lead him to some room where he might order his dress and person. Dirk complied though with an ill grace. But so pleasant did Montalvo make himself during those few moments, that before he ushered him back to the company, in some way, Dirk found himself convinced that this particular Spaniard was not, as the saying went, as black as his mustachios. He felt almost sure, too, although he had not yet found him time to tell him the details of it, that there was some excellent reason to account for his having carried off the adorable Lisbeth during an entire afternoon and evening. It is true that there still remained the strange circumstance of the attempted foul of his cousin von de Werf's sledge in the great race, but, after all, why should there not be some explanation of this also? It had happened— if it did happen, at quite a distance from the winning-post, when there were few people to see what passed. Indeed, now that he came to think of it, the only real evidence on the matter was that of his cousin, the little girl-passenger, since von de Werf himself had brought no actual accusation against his opponent. Shortly after they returned to the company, it was announced that supper had been served, whereon ensued a pause. It was broken by Montalvo, who, stepping forward, offered his hand to Lisbeth, saying in a voice that all could hear, "'Lady, my companion of the race, permit the humblest representative of the greatest monarch in the world to have an honour which, doubtless, that monarch would be glad to claim.' 
That settled the matter, for as the acting commandment of the Spanish garrison of Leiden had chosen to refer to his official position, it was impossible to question his right of precedence over a number of folk, who, although prominent in their way, were but unennobled Netherlander burghers. Lisbeth, indeed, did find courage to point to a rather flurried and spasmatic lady with grey hair, who was fanning herself as though the season were July, and wondering whether the cook would come up to the Grand Spaniard's expectations, and to murmur, "'My aunt!' But she got no further, for the Count instantly added in a low voice, "'Doubtless comes next in the direct line, but unless my education has been neglected, the heiress of the house, who is of age, goes before the collateral, however aged.' By this time they were through the door, so it was useless to argue the point further, and again Lisbeth felt herself overmatched and submitted. In another minute they had passed down the stairs, entered the dining-hall, and were seated side by side at the head of the long table, of which the foot was occupied presently by Dirk van Goorl and her aunt, who was also his cousin, the widow Clara van Ziel. There was a silence while the domestics began their service of which Montalvo took opportunity to study the room, the table, and the guests. It was a fine room, panelled with German oak, and lighted sufficiently, if not brilliantly, by two hanging brass chandeliers of the famous Flemish workmanship, in each of which were fixed eighteen of the best candles, while on the sideboards were branch candlesticks, also of worked brass. The light thus provided was supplemented by that from the great fire of peat and old ship's timber, which burned in a wide blue-tiled fireplace, half-way down the chamber, throwing its reflections upon many a flagon and bowl of cunningly hammered silver that adorned the table and the sideboards. The company was of the same character as the furniture, handsome and solid, people of means, every man and woman of them, accumulated by themselves or their fathers, in the exercise of the honest and profitable trade, whereof at this time the Netherlands had a practical monopoly. "'I have made no mistake,' thought Montalvo to himself, as he surveyed the room and its occupants. "'My little neighbor's necklace alone is worth more cash than ever I had the handling of, and the plate would add up handsomely. Well,' Before very long, I hope to be in possession to make its inventory. Then, having first crossed himself devoutly, he fell to upon a supper that was well worth his attention, even in a land noted for the luxury of its food and wines and the superb appetites of those who consumed them. It must not be supposed, however, that the gallant captain allowed eating to strangle conversation. On the contrary, Finding that his hostess was in no talkative mood, he addressed himself to his fellow guests, chatting with them pleasantly upon every convenient subject. Among these guests were none other than Peter von de Werf, his conqueror in that afternoon's conquest, upon whose watchful and suspicious reserve he brought all his batteries to bear. First he congratulated Peter, and lamented his own ill luck, and this with great earnestness, for as a matter of fact he had lost much more money on the event than he could afford to pay. Then he praised the grey horse, and asked if he was for sale, offering his own black in part exchange. "'A good nag,' he said, "'but one that I do not wish to conceal has his faults, which must be taken into consideration if it comes to the point of putting a price upon him.' For instance, 
Mynheer von de Werf, you may have noticed that the dreadful position in which the brute put me towards the end of the race. There are certain things that this horse always shies at, and one of them is a red cloak. Now I don't know if you saw that a girl in a red cloak suddenly appeared on the bank. In an instant the beast was round, and you may imagine what my feelings were, being in charge of your fair kinswoman, for I thought to a certainty that we should be over. What is more, it quite spoilt my chance of the race, for after he has shied like that, the black turns sulkily and won't let himself go. When Lisbeth heard the amazing explanation, remembering the facts, she gasped. And yet now, that she came to think of it, a girl in a red cloak did appear near them at the moment, and the horse did whip round as though it had shied violently. Was it possible, she wondered, that the captain had not really intended to foul the badger sledge? Meanwhile, von de Werf was answering in his slow voice. Apparently he accepted Montalvo's explanation. At least he said that he, too, saw the red-cloaked girl, and was glad that nothing serious had come of the mischance. As regarded the proposed deal, he should be most happy to go into it, upon the lines mentioned, as the grey, although a very good horse, was aged, and he thought the barb one of the most beautiful animals that he had ever seen. At this point, as he had not the slightest intention of parting with his valuable charger, at any rate on such terms, Montalvo changed the subject. At length, when men, and for the matter of that, women too, had eaten well, and the beautiful tall Flemish glasses, not for the first time, were replenished with the best Rhenish or Spanish wines, Montalvo, taking advantage of a pause in the conversation, rose and said that he wished to claim the privilege of a stranger among them, and propose a toast, namely, the health of his late adversary, Peter von de Werf. At this the audience applauded, for they were all very proud of the young man's success, and some of them had won money over him. Still, more did they applaud, being great judges of culinary matters, when the Spaniard began his speech by an elegant tribute to the surpassing excellence of the supper. Rarely, he assured them, and especially did he assure the Honorable Widow Von Zeal, who blushed all over with pleasure at his compliments, and fanned herself with such vigor that she upset Dirk's wine over his new tunic, cut in the Brussels fashion, the fame of whose still in such matters had traveled so far as the hog, for he had heard of it there himself, rarely even in the courts of the kings and emperors, or at the tables of popes and archbishops, had he eaten food so exquisitely cooked, or drunk wines of a better vintage. Then, passing on to the subject of his speech, von de Werf, he toasted him, and his horse, and his little sister, and his sledge, in really well-chosen and appropriate terms, not by any means overdoing it, for he confessed frankly that his defeat was a bitter disappointment to him especially as every soldier in the camp had expected him to win, and, he was afraid, backed him for more than they could afford. Also, incidentally, so that everyone might be well acquainted with it, he retold the story of the girl with the red cloak. Next, suddenly dropping his voice and adopting a quieter manner, he addressed himself to the Aunt Clara and the well-beloved Herr Dirk, 
saying that he owed them both an apology, which he must take this opportunity to make, for having detained the lady at his right during so unreasonable a time that afternoon. When, however, they had heard the facts, they would, he was sure, blame him no longer, especially if he told them that his breach of good manners had been the means of saving a human life. Immediately after the race, he explained, one of his sergeants had found him out to tell him that a woman, suspected of certain crimes against life and property, and believed to be a notorious escaped witch or heretic, had been captured, asking for reasons which he need not trouble them with, that he would deal with the case at once. This woman also, said the man, had been heard that very afternoon to make use of the most horrible, the most treacherous and blaspheming language to a lady of Leiden, the Jeffrau Elizabeth von Hout, indeed, as was deposed by a certain spy named Black Meg, who had overheard the conversation. Now, went on Montalvo, as he knew well every man and woman in that room would share his horror of treacherous and blasphemous heretics, here most of the company crossed themselves, especially those who were already secret adherents of the new religion. Still, even heretics had a right to a fair trial, at least he, who, although a soldier by profession, was a man who honestly detested unnecessary bloodshed, held that opinion. Also, long experience taught him great mistrust of the evidence of informers, who had a money interest in the conviction of the accused. Lastly, it did not seem well to him that the name of a young and noble lady should be mixed up in such a business. As they knew under the recent edicts, his powers in these cases were absolute. Indeed, in his official capacity, he was ordered at once to consign any suspected of Anabaptism or other forms of heresy to be dealt with by the appointed courts, and in the case of people who had escaped, to cause them on satisfactory proof of their identity, to be executed instantly without further trial. Under these circumstances, fearing that did the lady knew his purpose, she might take fright, he had, he confessed, resorted to artifice, as he was very anxious, both for her sake and in the interest of justice, that she should bear testimony in the matter. So he asked her to accompany him on a short drive while he attended to a business affair a request to which she had graciously assented. "'Friends,' he went on in a still more solemn voice, "'the rest of my story is short. Indeed, I do congratulate myself on the decision that I took, for when confronted with the prisoner, our young and honourable hostess was able upon oath to refute the story of the spy with the result that I in my turn was to save an unfortunate and, as I believe, a half-crazed creature from an immediate and a cruel death. Is that not so, lady? And, helpless in the net of circumstance, not knowing, indeed, what else to do, Lisbeth bowed her head in assent. I think, concluded Montalvo, that after this explanation, what may have appeared to be a breach of manners will be forgiven. I have only one other word to add. My position is peculiar. I am an official here, and I speak boldly among friends, taking the risk that any of you present will use what I say against me, which for my part I do not believe. Although there is no better Catholic and no truer Spaniard in the Netherlands, I have been accused of showing too great a sympathy with your people, and of dealing too leniently with those who have incurred the displeasure of our holy church. 
in the cause of right and justice, I am willing to bear such aspirations. Still, this is a slanderous world, a world in which truth does not always prevail. Therefore, although I have told you nothing but the bare facts, I do suggest in the interest of your hostess, in my own humble interest, who might be misrepresented, and I may add in the interest of every one present at this board, that it will perhaps be well that the details of the story which I have had the honour of telling you should not be spread about, that they should in fact find a grave within these walls. Friends, do you agree? Then moved by a common impulse, and by a common, if a secret, fear, with the single exception of Lisbeth, every person present, yes, even the cautious and far-seeing young von de Werf, echoed, We agree. Friends, said Montalvo, those simple words carry to my mind conviction deep as any vow, however solemn, deep, if that were possible, as did the oath of your hostess, upon the faith of which I felt myself justified in acquitting the poor creature who was alleged to be an escaped heretic. Then, with a courteous and all-embracing bow, Montalvo sat down. "'What a good man! What a delightful man!' murmured Aunt Clara to Dirk, in the buzz of conversation which ensued. "'Yes, yes, cousin, but—and what discrimination he has! What taste! Did you notice what he said about the cooking?' "'I heard something, but—it is true that folk have told me that my capon stewed in milk such as we had to-night. Why, lad, what is the matter with your doublet? You fidget me by continually rubbing at it.' "'You have upset the red wine over it, that is all,' answered Dirk sulkily. "'It is spoiled.' "'And little loss either. To tell you the truth, Dirk, I never saw a coat worse cut. You young men should learn in the matter of clothes from the Spanish gentleman. Look at His Excellency, the Count Montalvo, for instance.' "'See here, aunt,' broke in Dirk with suppressed fury. "'I think I have heard enough about Spaniards and the Captain Montalvo for one night.' First of all, he spirits off Lisbeth and is absent with her for four hours. Then he invites himself to supper and places himself at the head of the table with her, setting me down to the dullest meal I ever ate at the other end. "'Cousin Dirk,' said Aunt Clara with dignity, "'your temper has got the better of your manners. Certainly you might learn courtesy, as well as dress, even from so humble a person as a Spanish hidalgo and commander.' Then she rose from the table, adding— "'Come, Lisbeth, if you are ready, let us leave these gentlemen to their wine.' After the ladies had gone, the supper went on merrily. In those days nearly everybody drank too much liquor, at any rate at feasts, and this company was no exception. Even Montalvo, his game being won, and the strain on his nerves relaxed, partook pretty freely, and began to talk in proportion to his potations. Still, so clever was the man that in his cups he yet showed a method, for his conversation revealed a sympathy with Netherlander grievances and a tolerance of view in religious matters rarely displayed by a Spaniard. From such questions they drifted into a military discussion, and Montalvo challenged by von de Werf, who, as it happened, had not drunk too much wine, explained how, were he officer in command, he would defend Leiden from attack by an overwhelming force. 
Very soon Von de Werf saw that he was a capable soldier, who had studied his profession, and being himself a capable civilian, with a thirst for knowledge, pressed the argument from point to point. "'And suppose,' he asked at length, "'that the city were starving and still untaken, so that its inhabitants must either fall into the hands of the enemy, or burn the place over their heads. What would you do then?' "'Then, Mynheer,' If I were a small man, I should yield to the clamor of the starving folk and surrender. And if you were a big man, Captain? If I were a big man, ah, if I were a big man, why then I should cut the dikes and let the sea beat once more against the walls of Leiden. An army cannot live in salt water, mynheer. That would drown out the farmers and ruin the land for twenty years. Quite so, mynheer. But when the corn has to be saved, who thinks of spoiling the straw? I follow you, senor. Your proverb is good, although I have never heard it. Many good things come from Spain, mynheer, including this red wine. One more glass with you, for, if you will allow me to say it, you are a man worth meeting over a beaker or a blade. I hope that you will always retain the same opinion of me, answered von de Werf, as he drank, at the trencher or in the trenches. Then Peter went home, and before he slept that night, made careful notes of all the Spaniards' suggested military dispositions, both of attackers and attacked, writing underneath them the proverb about the corn and the straw. There existed no real reason why he should have done so, as he was only a civilian engaged in business. But Peter von de Werf, chanced to be a provident young man who knew many things might happen which could not precisely be foreseen. As it fell out in after years, a time came when he was able to put Montalvo's advice to good use. All readers of the history of the Netherlands know how the burgomaster Peter van de Werf saved Leiden from the Spanish. As for Dirk van Gorl, he sought his lodging rather tipsy, and arm-in-arm arm with none other than Captain the Count Don Juan de Montalvo. End of chapter 3